If Fog Could Sing Stories by Charlie Price An After-Dinner's Sleep, as it were, by Charlie Price Read by Robert Price Gratefully, the Millers received and accepted the butcher's invitation to their home in the countryside for a couple of days. The butchers and the millers had become acquainted with one another at a wedding reception. The butchers were friends of the bride, and the millers friends of the groom, and it was only in the ceremonial binding of the both of them that the millers and butchers crossed paths, and they had taken great pleasure in doing so. As he drove the blue family Kia towards a beautiful homestead behind crisscrossing dry stone walls, what miller took pleasure in recalling the scene. His son, Donald, and the butcher daughter, Frances, chasing each other and playing whatever game they had elected to play in the summer evening. Marriage shining in the minds of all, the millers and the butchers, wedding dapper, talked and laughed in the swoon, or was it a frown, of light. The evening written in a singular writing on the clouds, champagne, and scotch. The Kia pulled into the driveway of the butcher home, shuddering and chortling on the stones. The red butcher family car loomed close, too close, and Watt overshot the space in which he intended to park, denting the back bumper of the butcher family car, which had been immaculate from every angle. Some profanity shot from Watt's lips which Donald felt reach the backseat aisle where he sat from the faraway adult kingdom of the front of the car. Gary and Daisy Butcher appeared in the door and welcomed the Millers. They hadn't noticed the denting. Should we tell them? Watt said to his wife, Martine. Um, oh bugger, I'm not sure, Martine replied. Let's leave it, let's, let's leave it. Watt said, let's not mention it. Various melodic hellos were exchanged as the butchers traversed the driveway to greet the millers, large embraces at the end of the enthusiastic crossing. Watt and Martine Miller kept glancing nervously at the dent in the butcher's car, a crease, a strike, a soiling. He really was so very mortified by that scar of his authoring in the otherwise pristine vehicle. But the butchers didn't seem to notice it, and Watt and Martine were amazed with what swiftness they forgot about it. Donald's thumb was in a state of firm lodgment between his lips, and so he prevented himself from saying anything. Public thumb-sucking was his response to shyness, his strategy for avoiding dialogue. He was initially no less shy in the presence of Francis, but they seemed to warm to their work, doing what there was to be done with each, being, it seemed, the only children for many eternal miles. Gary was fetching down glasses from the cupboard with many clinks. Can I get you a drink, guys? Red, white, beer? I got juice for the kiddies. There was an enthusiasm to his assembly of the wine glasses, an avidity about his presentation of a Chianti and a Chardonnay in a bucket of ice on a countertop. A, a glass of red would be great, Watt replied. 
No worries, Gary replied. He was already swinging a bottle opener around in circles on his little finger. I'd, I'd really just like some juice, actually, Martine said. I'm not drinking at the moment. Orange? Please. Why? Daisy almost grunted. The curtness took Martine by surprise. Hmm? Martine replied, assuming she misheard the truculent why. Why? Daisy asked again, the volume and hostility unaltered. Um, ch change of habits. It's not a recent thing. I haven't drunk anything for about five months. I, I feel much better. You should... Well, well not should. You, you, you could. Try it. Could I? Daisy answered. The cork came out of the Chianti. Days, Gary admonished tacitly, with just the name a little abbreviated. Gary called his wife Days sometimes, rather than Daisy. Doesn't matter much, does it? said Martine. Daisy replied, We went to the best wine shop. We got advice from an authority. And you're not drinking. What reason did she have to be so pugilistic? It doesn't matter, Daisy, said Gary, giving what? His fill glass. Of course it doesn't. Please, enjoy your juice, Martine. Enjoy the wine, what? Daisy said. An enormous terracotta-coloured pot was cooking on the stove, and the house was warm and redolent with its contents. Garlic and onions, beans, rosemary, beef. It smells incredible, Gary. Martine said. The congratulatory warmth in her voice was genuine. It wasn't all Gary, Daisy said. Right. Well, it smells incredible, guys. Gary said, Yes, Daisy helped. I bought, prepared and cooked it, but Daisy tasted and advised all the while. She's got the better palate, you see. Excuse me, Daisy said. I'm just going to check on Mum. Uh, Mum? Watt inquired monosyllabically. Daisy was already gone, but Gary answered, Daisy's mother is staying with us. Uh, she just stays in bed these days. We feed her, make her tea, bring her her tablets, keep her company when we can. You won't see much of her. Gary poured himself a glass of beer as Martine asked if she could use the toilet. Gary gave her directions. While tentatively testing doors, Martine saw Daisy's mother. She was in a room at the far end of the corridor that ran directly from the front entrance to her room and looked directly at it. Daisy's mother, frail and pallid, sat bolt upright on her bed. So still and rigid, she might have been made of stone, gazing down the darkened length of the corridor at Martine. Martine waved at the old woman, so small and thin that she had turned almost sexless in her white decrepitude. She, only she by implication, did not wave back. Then Daisy appeared from the frame from within her mother's room and closed the door. About half an hour later, the children, a little bonded and the miller's belongings carried from the car to their room, the butcher and the miller grown-ups were in the middle of a conversation. Donald and Francis were seated at a little table of their own, eating a meal more friendly to the juvenile palate. 
gammon and chips, right next to the adults. Sorry, Gary, I have a terrible memory. What is it you do again? Martine inquired as Gary ladled a helping of dark meat and liquid into her bowl. I teach academic music at the university, he replied. The university around here? Yes. There's a university in this neck of the woods, Watt asked. Yes, Gary answered, replacing the pot on the stove. He went around the table with a bowl of spiced tomato. Do you like the work? Maltine inquired. When I'm allowed to do it properly, he said. How do you mean? Gary sat, continuing. Well, formalist classical music studies are untouched for quite a while by current political trends. You know, all that's been going on in the universities. But that's changing. I'm wasting so much of my time now talking about gender, about skin pigmentation, politics and curricular decolonization. I can't stand that word. Daisy interposed. What does it even mean? Decolonize the curriculum. I can't stand the entitlement of these ingrates, these blue-haired ingrates. Gary took over. I still feel that great classical music sits in a higher and more exalted sphere than political fashion. If your eyes can be opened to that by formal study, then, I think, your eyes stay open forever, you know? Martine's response was slight. She was made winsome, almost, by Gary's loquacity that had erupted with a suddenness that took her by surprise. She began to fill her mouth with food, like Donald sucking his thumb, so she couldn't speak. More wine, anybody? Gary offered. Yes, please, Watt answered, bearing his glass. Gary poured. This is delicious, by the way. Incredible, Martine said. In the walls of their house, enjoying flavourful mouthfuls of food they had lovingly prepared, how could she protest the tenor of the conversation? You know everyone in the class has to share their preferred pronouns now, Daisy said. Right, Martine said. Everyone? Watt asked. Even me, Gary answered. I feel like such an idiot at the start of the semester, every class saying he, him. It's like a solemn ritual to these ideologues, these gender ideologues. Fuck's sake. The table fell silent. Gary, please don't swear in front of our son, Martine said. You're absolutely right. I'm so sorry, Martine. My mistake, Gary replied hastily. There was something a little too rehearsed about his contrition, so it didn't sound genuine. I think people just want to be heard and seen and given due acknowledgement by the systems that... Yes, all that, Gary answered, cutting him short. Daisy's eyes were wide with strange enthusiasm. Gary's colour had changed. He was no longer congenial, but almost sharkish, avid, possessed. They destroyed someone very close to Gary, Daisy said. Uh, Who did? Martine asked. Who did what? Gary said. Destroyed your colleague. You know, them. Them. Those who espouse certain views, the vocal social justice types, as they call themselves. He was beloved, Cliff. 
He was disparaging about Coleridge Taylor, who is compulsory now, while Beethoven and Dvorak and Messiaen and everyone else are all fair game for the pruriently ambitious musical scholar and the ignorant. The girls are terrified of fucking. Did you know that? Sex is like a cup of tea. That's where we've got to now, Daisy said. Not like our generation at all, said Gary. Martine said, Sorry, Daisy, do you mind not swearing in front of Donald? They're all terrified of shagging, Daisy reiterated with less profanity. Wine was sipped. Then Gary said, Do you know I once refused to do the preferred pronouns carry-on? I just dispensed with it. All the kids were giving their personal pronouns. Hello, I'm so-and-so. Amazingly, every boy had he-him pronouns and every girl had she-her pronouns. Apart from one ugly, spectacled, androgynous male girl. I looked at, I, I don't know, it. And I just said, my name is Gary Butcher. Pronouns? What do you think? Pretended she couldn't possibly say. She, she had a girl's voice. What a disagreeable creature. The children seemed to enjoy their gammon and chips and went on contentedly eating all the while, occasionally glancing, hopefully, uncomprehendingly, in the adult's direction. And on, and on the broadcasts went, asking the family they had invited into their home no questions whatsoever, nothing filling the room but this strange collusion between Gary and Daisy each butcher encouraging the other, one inexorably self-nourishing, self-perpetuating diatribe after another, each egging on the other's indignance. The dinner they served and the wine they served were beyond reproach. But what could have possibly drawn the millers to the butchers? Martine even pondered how Walt and Rebecca's marriage could possibly survive if these were the people that the woman, now Walt's wife, associated with. What earthly thing? What scrap? What shred of good? For Martine doubted there was even a shred in all their malignity had drawn Martine and Watt to these people. Was Daisy's smile so dishonest? Gary's charm so superficial. Watt was more forgiving than Martine, but even he was amazed at how wrong he had been about these people. He had been genuinely gratified at their invitation. Now he called into utter question his ability to judge character. Almost bloated with the helpings she had compulsively consumed to avoid conversation, and made genuinely ill by the host's political lamentations and cultural eulogies, Martine suddenly found she had rather a lot to process, materially speaking, in the lavatory. Having passed the room, door re-ajar, where Daisy's mother sat, blank, frozen, sedentary, Martine entered the bathroom. Much as her mind rebelled against it, her body seemed to have a will of its own, to take revenge upon this house. It was excruciating to make the discovery that the toilet was blocked to an extent she could not remedy. And she was later made sleeplessly melancholy by the ignobility of blaming the catastrophic obstruction on her own child. The lie made believable 
by one somewhat prolonged trip Donald had taken to the toilets. Donald was put initially in the same room as his parents, but he decided he'd much prefer to sleep in the same room as Francis. So he did. He bedded down in the foreign softness of a sleeping bag the butchers had provided for him. He was very tired and dropped off to sleep soon enough. The adults finished the open wine and then imbibed some grappa or scotch, depending on personal preference. Inebriation quieted the butchers and Watt was able to admit at Gary and Daisy's questioning a liking for morning sex, perhaps even over bedtime sex. And the butchers said something about costumes and domination, but Martine was so tired and fed up that she barely heard what anyone had to say and she retired not that long after the children were put to bed, and what with her, at her surreptitious signal. Blue. Strange night. And a moon almost full, but not quite. Donald woke up with a start in his sleeping bag. He found getting to sleep in other people's houses a trial at the best of times, but he was restless. He had been sleepy, but now his sleepiness had been replaced by its perfect opposite. Something was alive, and charged as though with current in the air around him. He exited the sleeping bag and opened the door of Francis' room very quietly. Then he began walking. He wanted to slip into his parents' room and bed down at their feet, but he wasn't sure, and even less so in the dark, as to where the room was located. So he stepped, walked, he roamed the hallways and the corridors. It was quite a large house. He even took pleasure in this lost wandering, in the darkness, in the unknown alleys of carpet stretching before him. Passing what he presumed was the toilet, he detected the last of that disagreeable odour, the blame for which, unbeknownst to him, his own mother had visited upon him. Donald saw an open door and a dimly lit light. He felt almost as though he were dreaming. There was something dreamlike about this house. In the dim light, in the frame of the open door, there was an old, white-haired woman sitting, stilly, still and serious-faced, with steel eyes. Donald saw her blink, very slowly, just once. He saw light and went towards it. The door of a bare white room was open. Donald stood before this open door, not crossing its threshold. He saw two strangers in this room. Were they entities? Impostors? A man in a tight, glistening black bodysuit and a black dog mask with a canine tail. He was on his knees. He was begging, like a dog. A masked woman with black robes and gleaming ebony wings was holding a big whip. The dogman was begging, but Donald couldn't hear what he was begging for, or begging to be spared. 
The winged woman was hitting the dogman. She was hitting him, hurting him. The dogman woofed, and the woof made Donald sad. He had to say something. He had to do something. She was hitting him, striking him on the back, on the rump. It must hurt. It must hurt. Donald ran into the room, wringing his hands before him. He cried out, Stop it! Stop hurting him! The two black beings noticed quite suddenly that their scene had been disturbed. They looked at each other and then scampered off. They fled with such suddenness, such mortified haste, that Donald couldn't catch up with them before they disappeared. Donald never found the room his parents were in, but he was able to retrace his steps back to Francis' room. When morning came, he wondered if he had been dreaming the whole time. The Millers decided to leave the butcher's house early the next day. They packed. Sorry you can't stay longer, Gary said at the door. Us too, said Watt. No gifts, Daisy inquired with accusation in her voice. No, said Watt, carrying off the Millers' luggage. Martine had been sat in the front seat of the Kia for about half an hour, so eager was she to vacate the driveway. The luggage was loaded and Watt and Donald were seated. Martine looked out of her window and she noticed the dent in the butcher's car. She'd completely forgotten about it. Just as Watt was about to turn the key in the ignition, Martine undid her seatbelt. Wait a moment, she said, and opened her door. She exited the car and walked up to the butchers, Gary and Daisy still at the door, Gary waving, Daisy gazing. Behind them, all the way at the other end of the corridor, Daisy's mother was still there in bed, blank, congealed, like a mother of ice. Martine spoke to the butchers. It was me, not Donald, who blocked the toilet. Gary and Daisy seemed incredulous. And what made a dent in the back of your car? And I don't think I want to have dinner with you two people ever again. Goodbye. And off she went. And off they all went. Driving home, what said, They're quite something, those two. Nasty. They're quite a piece of work. Some people just get off on cruelty, I guess, Martine said. Donald had been rather quiet. You're right, Donald, you're being rather quiet, said Martine. What did you think of Francis's house? Donald thought for a moment, chose his words carefully and said, I saw two ghosts in the night. I think their house is haunted. Do you think we should tell Francis? Francis?